You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, let's open them up. Uh, let's turn to the book of Esther. <clears throat> we kind of uh, polished off chapter one last week. And uh, as you're turning there, I don't know if, if you have actually in your quiet time or if you have just found some moments in the, over the past couple of weeks to just kind of read through the story. Um, I don't know if you have noticed this. I have noticed this as I've gone through it, and, and maybe I'm different, but does this, does this story make you feel a little uncomfortable? Uh, it sure makes me feel uncomfortable. I, I mean, I feel uncomfortable at the best of times. When, I remember one time Wayne and I went to a movie. And this is a number of years ago. I think it was Lord of the Rings or The Two Towers or that really doesn't matter. Anyway, what does matter is that we were sitting in our seats there, and then uh, it was opening night, and so they, it was really crowded, and they were making a big deal about this at the, at the theater, and then this guy kind of gets up, and uh, that one of the movie um, theater staff was welcoming everyone to the theater. This doesn't always happen. Um, but he was on a microphone and then this guy stands up and he grabs the microphone from the person that is, uh, in, uh, that is talking and he says, I have a speech to make. And he's got these robes on like he, he's dressing up like a, a character from the movie and he proceeds to give this big diatribe, this big speech uh, by this character named Gandalf in the movie, doesn't matter again. Anyway, and so he, and he has nothing to do with the staff. He, he just is there to see the movie, but he dressed up. So he's one of those guys. And then he is just giving the speech and he is, I mean, it was, it was really, he was really well done. But at the same time, I was just thinking, this guy really has no social graces and he doesn't understand how embarrassing this is because I was super embarrassed for him. I didn't know him from Adam. But I was embarrassed for him, and I was uncomfortable, and I kind of shrunk down in my seat because I just, I didn't want to even watch because it was so terrible. Have you ever felt uncomfortable like that? This is the way that Esther makes me feel. I don't know if you feel that, but that's kind of where we want to start this morning. Let me just give you a little bit of background before we, we jump back in, in, into chapter two, but let's just remind ourselves about what is happening in the story. Um, when we left off in chapter one, Queen Vashti has now been deposed, and we know that uh, she has been deposed because um, she refused her husband's request to kind of come to his party, his big drunken party, six months, uh, uh, and, and to parade herself in front of her, uh, uh, his drunken dinner, dinner guests. And as a result of her refusal to do what the king asked her to do, she was deposed. And <clears throat> um, rabbinic tradition actually tells us that... Um, it most likely Queen Vashti was put to death. We don't know that for sure. Uh, even historical records aren't clear in that. We just know that the Bible doesn't tell us any more about what happens to her, and it's very difficult in history uh, in, in, in some of the ancient historians to find out exactly what happens to Queen Vashti. Um, but 
whatever happens to her, we know that, like we said last week, exit Vashti, enter Esther, right? That's, that's kind of where things are going. And King Ahasuerus, uh, you know, I'm not sure why I don't just use Xerxes, because that's way easier, but uh, just forgive me. If I say Ahasuerus or I say Xerxes, I mean the same person, all right? So I don't want to be... Um, confusing that way but I will be I will continue uh, when King Ahasuerus refused by Queen Vashti has his royal ego stepped on history tells us that's something that the Bible actually doesn't reference and I think I alluded to this last week I can't remember if I did but we don't find this in the Bible all we find when we read chapter one and chapter two of Esther is that there is a uh, there's a gap there's a there's there's this time that it seems like between chapter one and chapter two, there are a few years that have gone by. Okay. Um, probably three or four. <coughs> uh, Herodotus, the ancient historian tells us that uh, in the same year that this story and Esther happens 480 BC, um, perhaps uh, sorry, 480 BC is when chapter one happens Aswaris is enraged at his wife Vashti and because he is uh, enraged he goes off to war. Uh, I mean that's the way it seems. He engages the Greeks uh, in in a huge war and uh, one of the battles of this war is called the Battle of Salamis. It's a it's a uh, naval battle. This is just for trivia for you. Uh, Herodotus tells us that Aswaris took Two million soldiers to that battle, 4,000 ships to the Greek islands, and it was fought in the northern part of the Aegean Sea, and it is there that Ahasuerus suffers a calamitous defeat. I mean, he just gets shelled. He regroups after that battle, <coughs> after losing terribly, um, annihilating a lot of his troops he grew, he regroups he spends about a year in uh, Thessaly <coughs> excuse whoa <coughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry everyone I'm sorry uh, and then he launched another attack after that against the Greeks this time not on the sea he learned his lesson he went on land it was the battle of uh, Plataea in and that was in 479 BC so a year had passed and then <laughs> He suffers another terrible loss. Two years, two battles of one war, he suffers these catastrophic military losses, and he returns home to Susa, to Persia, <coughs> with his uh, proverbial tail between his legs. All those things happen between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Esther. Um, and so it's important that we <clears throat> it's important that we remember that when we think about this story because it's important that we get the context that we that we kind of accept the frame of mind of what's happening here when we read in chapter two uh, that Ma that passage that Pastor Matt read for us when Ahasuerus comes back to the citadel in Susa. He's defeated and a broken man. I don't know. Um, it seems like modern day culture has kind of taken Xerxes or Ahasuerus and, and they have kind of made him into this kind of godlike feature. He's 
this Persian king in modern day culture in some video games in a movie called 300 uh, and I don't recommend any of these things. I'm just telling you that modern day culture has kind of elevated um, Ahasuerus into this kind of godlike figure. And he is not that in, in this way. He, in, <clears throat> in some of the movies that we see, he's, he's sort of a villain and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he is, he is uh, considered to be godlike and he's muscular and this man's man kind of thing and all that sort of stuff. He's not that. Um, not according to what happens here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, uh, of Esther. This is a broken man. This is a, uh, a man whose pride has been uh, attacked, and he is weak, he is sullen, he is defeated, he is broken. And I think it's a caution for all of us, certainly for us guys, when, our, uh, when, when Ahasuerus' pride and his ego got wounded, what did he do? I mean, first he dishonored his wife. Then he got angry and restless, and he got engaged in a military adventure to try to bolster his pride and ego around the world, only to find out that the, there was greater humiliation and defeat for this guy. And I think that there's maybe a little bit of King Ahasuerus in, in all of us, certainly in all of us guys. You get your pride stepped on. You get your ego stepped on. You're wounded. And you don't... And if you don't get your ego or your identity grounded in Christ, what you're going to find is... What often happens is you are going to start dishonoring the ladies in your life. You are going to get angry and you are going to get resentful and you're going to end up seeking often immoral adventures to try to bolster your pride. That's the roadmap that King Ahasuerus created for us in the book of Esther. And the good news is if we come before the Lord and we confess that pride, if we get ourselves and our identities grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's going to go a long way to prevent us from making really terrible sinful choices. But this is the context for which chapter 2 is all about. This is the kind of guy that Ahasuerus is. He is defeated, he's sullen, and, the more, and even more interesting is the fact that the, that the text in chapter 2, in this passage that, that Pastor Matt read for us, it actually hints that the king may have actually regretted his drunken, rash decision to first dishonor his wife and then to get rid of her. A couple years have passed since chapter one. <laughs> he has experienced these, these defeats. The world is laughing at him. His wife is gone and he comes back to this empty palace. He's sad, he's lonely, he's defeated. And in these moments, don't you think it's, or is it any wonder that King Ahasuerus, uh, the state that he's in, were we in the same position, I think we would begin to think about life in the rearview mirror. We'd look back and we'd go, man, remember when it was so good? We would have some regrets. And that's probably the context of what is happening here in chapter 2 as we begin. Uh, I'm not going to go back and, and read it again, but... I mean, there's some major characters that are introduced to us. Esther is introduced to us in chapter 2. Mordecai is 
is introduced to us. Mordecai is this really kind of uh, amazing figure in the book of Esther. He's mentioned actually 58 times. He's mentioned more than Esther is in, in Esther's own book. Interesting. Um, and, I, and I want you to think this morning, um, as we think of chapter 2, and we've hinted at it in chapter 1 as well, we, we have talked ad nauseum about the idea that even though God isn't mentioned by name in the book, that he is at work in the book. God is at work. And I want you to always keep that in mind. And I want you to think this morning, figuratively speaking, as God having two hands. I'm pretty sure that's pretty easy for us to do, right? But think about this. Think about his one hand representing his works in the visible realm. Uh, invisible, tangible ways. We would call those things, um, we would call them in some ways, we would call them miracles. The, the things that we can see, maybe they are supernatural, maybe they are just you getting a really prime parking spot at Walmart or, or whatever like that. The, I don't know if God works at Walmart. I, I'm not sure. Um, but think about that. Think about the one hand that God has and he has... Uh, he works in the visible, in the, in, in the miracle realm, the things that we can see, the things that we can go, man, praise the Lord for that. God is working and we can see it. And then I want you to think about his other hand and the way that he works in the unseen, the way that he works in the invisible things behind the scenes, the way that he works this here to get this over here and this over here, and the way that he weaves the tapestry together. And it makes sense, not to us all the time, but certainly it makes sense in his eyes. That is called providence. The providence of God, the way that God works behind the scenes. His providence is no less powerful then the visible displays of his miracle, it's just that we can see the, the, the way that God works in, in some ways. We can see the, the visible things all the while not realizing that God is, not, is, is working in very miraculous ways, not just in front of what we can see, but also in the things that we cannot see. He is orchestrating events and he is arranging things and he's weaving things together in the tapestry of our lives for his purposes. That is providence. And providence is what the book of Esther is all about. The book of Esther is a book about the providence of God. It is about the unseen hand of God. It is so unseen that he's not even mentioned in the book, but he is there on every page between every word, between every letter that is written for us on the page. God is there and he is at work. He is evident in the book of Esther and he begins to move in this providential way, orchestrating events in the story. Right from the very beginning, right from the drunken dinner party to, the, to Queen Vashti being deposed, to the introduction of Mordecai and the introduction of, of Esther and introduction of the, the evil villain that we know to be Haman. And what nobody knows except God, and what we actually have the advantage of knowing because we have the book, is that there is soon going to be this evil plot instigated by this guy named Haman in an attempt not just to annihilate Esther and not just annihilate Mordecai, but also the entire 
Jewish race of people that are there in Persia at the time. And God, knowing that this evil plan is afoot, providentially will intervene or did intervene. He begins to move Esther through these series of events, moving her from here to here to here to here to here and all these different places through a series of events that just kind of move her to these places. The unseen hand of God moving her through a series of events to position her into a very influential, strategic role as the next queen of Persia. Miraculous. And this is how it happens. We know the state of mind that Ahasuerus is in. He's forlorn. He's lonely after his military defeats. And maybe he's even regretting the idea that he has uh, deposed Vashti. Um, And then his friends or his servants or someone comes along and says, man, you look down in the dumps. We got to do something here. And and they basically say to him, you know what you need? You need... uh, you need a good woman. That's what you need. You need another woman to come and to take the place of Vashti. Um, here's what we recommend you do. We, we recommend, this is not my idea, this is Chuck Swindoll. We recommend you have a Miss Persia contest. That's essentially what they were going to do. And I don't know if they got Donald Trump to pay for it, but that is what they were going to do. Um, and they said we should ask some questions like how do you eradicate world hunger or at least hunger in Persia. Uh, we can have an evening gown competition, all these sorts of things. It's going to be fantastic. Come on. Some of those things are funny. You should laugh. <coughs> Thank you for the two people that laughed. I appreciate that. Um, anyway, this is the idea that is put forward to King Ahasuerus. And guess what happens? He loves the idea. Go figure. Um, and, and then basically what happens is they get a bunch of young, beautiful ladies from throughout the kingdom, and I don't know if they kidnap them or, or if they do, but they gather them together. 127 provinces, there's a lot of young, beautiful ladies, right? And they bring them to Persia. They bring them to Susa for the king to choose who he wants. Among the finalists for Miss Persia is none other than Esther. Esther is in her given name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle or beautiful tree. Um, but she's given this Babylonian Persian name after the goddess of uh, Babylonian fertility, Ishtar, Esther. Um, remember that J- Esther is this Jew, and she's living in Persia as a result of the exiles. Um, and she's taken in captivity to Persia under King Nebuchadnezzar. We know that story. We know how they get to Babylon. We know how Babylon turns into Persia. We know all that. uh, But this story, if you want a frame of reference of time, it would probably, what is happening in the book of Esther would probably be happening at the same time as the events that are happening in Ezra. Uh, Specifically, Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. All these things that are happening in Esther... Uh, are happening in, in Ezra at the same time. Two different places, obviously, but um, they're, they're happening at the same time. We know from chapter 2 she's an orphan, this Esther. We know that her parents have died. We know that she has a cousin named Mordecai who has actually become sort of like her father, her father figure, her guardian at the very least. <coughs> 
As part of the selection process for replacing the queen, all these contestants are brought together to the palace. They undergo, chapter 2 tells us, one year of beauty treatments. A whole year of beauty treatments for one encounter with the king. It tells us six months of treatments of myrrh, six months of perfumes and cosmetics. Beauty is expensive. Not just a year of beauty treatments, but to get a little bit more serious, verse 14 and following tells us that the girls were actually required to spend not just an evening, but an entire night with the king. And if he liked you, he would call you back. If he didn't like you, the text tells us he would send them, one, send them away until one girl was left standing. That was the selection process. One left standing. The one left standing was, was Esther. Further down in chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 17 tells us... Uh, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in the sight more than all the other virgins, so that he sent the royal crown, he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashley. And then the king gave a feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts for royal generosity. So Esther... I know we kind of blazed through there, but Esther is chosen to replace Vashti as the queen of Persia. She is best guess maybe between 17 and 19 years old at the time. Um, Ahasuerus is probably about 35. If you're thinking that this is a really weird and terrible way to choose a wife, you're, you're right. It, it is. Um, the idea that there is going to be a context, uh, contest between a bunch of beautiful ladies who are recruited to impress a single guy, and then the guy dates all the finalists until one is left standing. If that is bothersome to you, you're right. It should be bothersome to you. Now, how many of you watched The Bachelor? Oh, isn't that uncomfortable now? I know that there are some of you out there. This is a modern-day version of Esther. This is what happened. Um, For those of you who don't know what The Bachelor is, God bless you. Just going to leave it right there. How many, I mean, The Bachelor comes from from this book. It's just that they don't get a rose in in Esther chapter 2. They get a crown. It's the exact same thing. Now, I mean, all joking aside, right back to my opening thought, doesn't this make you feel uncomfortable? These are young teenage girls who have been recruited for the most powerful man on earth at the time so he can selectively sleep with the ones that he wants. There are parts of this story that ought to make us feel really icky. Uh, in all honesty, I, and, and, I, and I totally get the argument that this is a different time and we don't understand uh, how things went back there and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I get all that. But we're living in 2023 and some of this stuff, it just, 
I mean, and I remember one of my seminary professors once, we were reading through Genesis, and he said, you know, if they made Genesis into a movie, it would have to be, R, it would have to be rated R. And, and that's true. There's a lot of the things in the Bible that, that, that we can't explain away, or, or, and, and when we read them, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, this book, Esther, it deals with some really dark stuff. And I think about the fact that Esther was gathered to that palace with all those other ladies, those beautiful young ladies, and they were all gathered there for one reason, to please the king. And I wonder to myself, where was Mordecai? I mean, and we see Mordecai as this this heroic figure, and I'm not suggesting that he's not. Uh, I'm just saying that... uh, you know what I do when I read in chapter 2 about Mordecai kind of walking back and forth uh, close to where all the ladies were in the harem? I just, I see him in my mind. I, w- I want to see him walking back and forth with this kind of angst and worrying about her and, and how she is doing and, and, and a little bit of, you know, hand rubbing and worry. That's what I want to see at Mordecai doing. And I get the argument that, that everything that happens is happening for a reason and God is working in and, and, and through and, and providence and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't change the fact that some of this stuff is super dark. It started with this egotistical drunken dinner party. It, it, it continued on to the dishonoring of a woman. Now we read about the mistreatment of young ladies. We read about, if we keep going, we're going to read about an assassination plot. We, we are going to read about the idea of genocide of an entire race of people. That There's plans, there's a lot of darkness here. It has a bright ending. But what we're going to wade through in some of this stuff is complicated. It is complex to get the whole picture of God's providential care. I mean, and, but one of the things that I think that we can take from this and we can read in, uh, as we read this, we can consider this, that even in the worst things that humanity can do, God can still use it for his glory. God is still at work. And we, we, we kind of referenced that last week. And, I mean, Esther herself is even complicated and, and complex. And some of the different Bible commentaries that you read, they're kind of divided on her. Um, it's, it's unmistakable that at the end of the story, she's this courageous young woman whom uh, God used in this wonderful providential way. It, it, she's mirac- it, in a miraculous way. She's a heroine at the end of the story. And I don't want to take any of that away from her. But because God is not mentioned in the book anywhere, we don't exactly know where Esther stands with with the Lord. We don't exactly know what her relationship is. We don't know where Mordecai's relationship is, really. It's very complex trying to discern it. And the fact of the matter is that there's not a single reference in the book where Esther prays or where she quotes quotes scripture or, or anything else. And and, th- and there's, there's great contrast between the way that Esther behaves with the way that maybe, say, a contemporary of hers, Daniel, would have behaved in the same way in the same place. Now, I don't want to besmirch 
uh, or take away from who Esther is. She is in the Bible for a reason. And, and this is a miraculous story. This is an amazing story, the way God works. Um, and, and I choose... I choose to give uh, her the benefit of the doubt. I believe that she was this godly young woman whose faith was quiet but nonetheless real. Her personality was reserved. We kind of read about her being uh, timid sometimes. She was trying to please both the king, her husband, and, and her cousin Mordecai, who was like a father to her. At other times, she appears this brave and courageous lady and in the end what God does is he uses her to accomplish a great purpose the saving of the Jewish people and I think the quality that stands out about Esther the most is that more than anything else is the way that she comes across in the story as one who just wants to be available for the God for God to use It is noteworthy that she never attempts to, to grab the glory for herself. To say, hey, look at what I did. Look at me. Look at how awesome I am. She's not vying for the queen's crown. She's not trying to get promotion, pr- uh, position, prestige. That's a good outline. I'm going to write that down later. Um, she, is, she is just trying to be faithful in whatever circumstance it is even at even if it's at the behest of this most powerful man on earth at the time she's just going to be faithful she never grabs the glory she just wants to be of this faithful vessel like second corinthians chapter four says this this jar of clay that's god going that god is going to use for his glory And if you believe in miracles and if you believe in the providence of God this morning, I can prove it all to you because I only have one point. That's it. It's only one thing. And I I don't want to make too big a deal about it, but I only have this one. This is important. And if there is only one thing that you remember from everything that I say today, you remember this. When you pursue glory for yourself, you are going to end up miserable. You are going to end up in misery. I mean, you look at Esther's life. She didn't pursue it. She didn't give glory to, uh, she, she didn't pursue her own glory. She gave glory to God in the way that she behaved, in the way that she acted. She didn't seek promotion. She didn't seek prestige. She didn't seek her own power. But somehow, some way, it was given to her. She was elevated to this place by the providence of God. And the lesson that we have here is that when we end up pursuing glory for ourselves, we are going to end up experiencing misery. I mean, you just think about examples right here in the book. Think about King Ahasuerus. Six months, he has this open house. He wants everybody around Persia to come and see his palace and his possessions and his prestige. And he says, look at me. Look at my power. Look at my majesty. Look at all the things that I have. And how did it turn out? Not very well. He lost his wife. He lost the war. He lost the respect of his people. And he hung his head, his head in defeat. He was miserable. Do you know why he was miserable? Because he was the guy who pursued his own glory. 
And history tells us that a few years later, he is going to be actually assassinated by the captain of his own royal guard. That's his life. And it was all because, I think, he pursued his own glory. He ended up in misery. Think of Haman. Haman is the same thing. We get this brief introduction to him. We're going to learn more about him yet. But we, had, we know that this is a guy who, who tried to elevate himself. And he gets a promotion from King Ahasuerus, and it goes to his head, and he wants everybody in the streets, when he walks down the street, when he's taken for a ride in his chariot down the street, he wants to be bowed down to. He wants people to recognize him for who he is and all the power that he, ha- that he has. And, and that's where we're, we're, we're introduced to the, the conflict that Mordecai has with him. And it's really from this idea of the pride and the, this idea of who Haman thinks he is and how important he is and noticing that Haman won't bow down to him. Um, we, really, that's the start of the conflict that, that really brings us to the climax of the entire book, right? Because Haman not only wants to kill Mordecai, but he also wants to kill every person that is like Mordecai. He wants to annihilate the entire Jewish race. Spoiler alert, Mordecai actually doesn't get his plan to go through and we find out that he gets hanged. Why? Because when you pursue your own glory... You end up in misery. There is story like story after story after story after story like that. Korah in Numbers chapter 16, he thinks he's a big deal and he wants to take over from Moses. You know what happens to him? The earth swallows him up because of his pride. Do you know why? He wanted glory. He wanted power. He wanted prestige. And he pursued his own glory and ended up with misery. Think about King Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 15. What does he do? He has this great victory, and it's not enough. He thinks to himself, you know, I I love being the first king. I I love being a king. It's so good. But from time to time, I also want to be a a priest. And what does he do? He gathers some animals together, and he starts slaughtering them. And then uh, Samuel shows up and says, why am I hearing cows and sheep? And uh, Saul says, well, You were late, so I wanted to do this for myself. It's no big deal. It was at that moment that the kingdom was taken away from Saul. Why? Because he pursued his own glory. And he didn't place it in the proper context. He didn't... He ended up in misery. King Uzziah is the same thing. Second Chronicles chapter 26. He does almost the exact same thing as Saul. He goes to the temple... And he thinks, I'm the king. I'm pretty important. Actually, I am the most important. And I want to offer a sacrifice today. And so he walks right in. And he's got his uh, incense there. And, the, the, and what happens? Head to toe leprosy. Why did he get that? Because he, was, he just went against the rules of the almighty God. I mean, he, he did something that he was not supposed to do. He, you know what he was doing? He was pursuing his own glory. He was saying, I'm so great, I can do this. The rules don't apply to me. And he ended up in misery. There are 
so many other stories that we could share this morning. Esther, by all appearances, is this woman who didn't pursue anything. She wasn't in the, not in the sense of promoting herself. She didn't seek power. She didn't seek prestige. But you know what? God brought it to her. God brought it to her because as a vessel, God understood that she would always, I think, put him on display, not herself. So when he gave her power and prestige and position that she didn't even seek, she elevated the name of God. I know maybe we're reading into things just a little bit, but I think that the lesson here is that that's something that maybe we can do for ourselves. When God knows that he will be the most glorified through your life or through my life, there will be promotion. You, God will promote you. I, I'm not saying to a higher position or, or anything like that. God will use you the way God will use you. I'm just saying that God will work through us or he will work in spite of us. He can demote us. He can remove us. You know what so, uh, Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory. To, to you be all the glory. When we don't do that, it will not go well for us. When we pursue glory for ourselves, we only end up in misery. And I think, I really think that Esther understood that. I'm just going to be this jar of clay. I'm just going to be this earthen vessel, a faithful one, where God has, where God can use me. And I'll let God promote or demote. I'll let God do the work, and I'll just be available. Shouldn't that be our prayer? Shouldn't that be what we desire, that God would just use us? I hope and I trust that we will let God do that today, that we will trust in his providence, that God works together for the good of those who love him. That does not mean that good things are always going to happen, but it does mean that God is going to work together for for his glory and for your good. Sometimes his good for us and our good for us are two completely different things. I get that. And we need to understand that. But, but God works together for, for our good and his glory. And so let's seek his glory today. And let's let him work in the way that he does. Even if we can't see it, we need to know that God is at work. God, just use me. Promote me or demote me. I just want you to bring me whatever you want so that you can be most glorified in my life. Isn't that our prayer? Shouldn't that be our prayer? Let's pray. Father, You are a good God, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for these opportunities that we have to to share your word. And Father, I pray that uh, as we go about this week, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, work, school, uh, relaxing, visiting, Father, I pray that your unseen hand would be at work, not for our glory, but for yours. And God, may you work uh, in, the, in the good stuff and in the dark stuff. 
Um, and so, Father, I pray that you would help us to, to, to wade out of some of the dark stuff that maybe is taking place in our lives, the things that maybe are getting in the way of our relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would use us for your glory, not our own. We thank you for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.